I'm going to tell you something that is not going to surprise you if you were paying attention for those first few minutes. I am disoriented this morning. Thinking clearly, but this week has been pretty chaotic, and this message has been a very interesting one to prepare. So, we're going to be in 1 John, continuing our series. And as I pray here this morning, I would appreciate your prayers. We're going to be praying that God would speak clearly and that all of the things that I have been praying about and considering and thinking about and just writing out and all of those things, that they would somehow get formed into something that is helpful and encouraging and something most of all that would point you to Jesus. So, let's pray. Father God, you, you know better than anyone here, including myself, what you have been doing this week. And so God, we all, we all come here in varying states of focus and disarray. We have all had weeks, some of our weeks have been, some of the weeks represented in this room have been typical Some have been stressful. Some may have been relaxing. God, we come from all of those places, and you are not naive to any of that. You've brought us all together here this morning to worship you, to worship you through song, to worship you through connecting with one another and loving one another and to worship you through the ministry of your word. So God, I pray that you would help us this morning. Help us to hear your word, to understand it. Help me to communicate it in a way that is honoring to you and helpful to my family. I pray, God, that you would be glorified and that we would be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this series, the, the first couple of weeks, we have gone kind of in the, the, we've taken a chunk of First John each time, and this week we're going to start doing, um, kind of shifting gears a little bit through First John. So I, you may have remembered that when I mentioned at the beginning about how John writes and how that's different than how Paul writes, John uh, holds up these, these things. He has these big picture themes, these themes that he wants to hit, and he kind of runs laps around them, all right? So he'll just... He'll, he'll hit something, and then a chapter later, he'll hit it again. And a chapter later, he'll hit it again. And he just kind of intermingles those things um, throughout his letter. And so one way to teach that is to just go through it verse by verse and, and, hit, and hit them as they come and just draw at it again. Another way is to kind of consolidate that and to pull out those themes and say, okay, let's look at this theme from the different ways that he talks about it. And that's what we're going to do today. So we're going we're gonna to skip around a little bit. We're going to be in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. Um, and so that's why I think it's important to have your Bible um, in front of you. So the recap here, and, and see if you kind of notice the, the themes of what he's drawing out. Um, we, we talked about how, in, in that first week, how God is light, and how there is no darkness in him at all, that he is the source of light. He is the definition of light. He is the definition of goodness. And, and um, I think, yeah, next week, Jeff is going to be talking about how he is the definition of love, and what does that mean? And so we, we said things like, we don't describe God with these, with these words. He is these words. He is, he is the definition of that. And so we talked about how we are called to orbit around that light, to, to fellowship in the light, and to not be one wandering away. We talked about how we are prone to wander away because of the rebellion um, of man and because of sin. We are prone to try to make other things the light, things that we can control more easily, things that make sense to our minds more, more simply, like it just, it fits better. And, and so we, we like to do that. And so we talked about the importance of fellowshipping in that light. And then last week we talked about, okay, but, but when we don't do that, what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves orbiting around lesser things? 
and walking in darkness. And we talked about how Jesus is our advocate. We have redemption in Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins. John says, I write all these things so you don't sin, but if you do, you have an advocate in Jesus. And he is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So he cleanses us of our sin. And we talked about all the beautiful things that that entails. But then he goes on, he says, so, so if you are in the light, then you will walk in the light. Look at what he says in, in chapter 2, verse 3. It says, by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, Notice how before he said that, that if you say that you have no sin in you, then you are deceiving yourself and, and you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And now he says, if you don't walk in righteousness, if you don't, if you don't practice this, if you don't walk in this light, and, if you, and, he, and he specifically says if you don't keep his commandments, so in other words, if you don't obey Jesus, then you're not in him. So notice what, how he's kind of constructing this argument. He's saying, look, God is the light. And only those who abide in him and trust in him and confess their sins and, and, and forsake darkness and die to themselves and die to their sin and come under the light of Christ, only those will be called children of God. Only those will be cleansed of their unrighteousness. And he says, you will know who they are by whether they keep his commandments. By whether they walk in the light or walk in darkness. By whether they, he'll talk about this later, practice righteousness or practice sinning. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. What John is saying is that if we walk in the light, then we are cleansed of righteousness, unrighteousness, and we will then walk in the way in which he walked, in the way that Jesus walked. If we remain in darkness, then we will be left in our unrighteousness, and we will walk in sin. Now the danger here is that we hear that, that logic, and that structure, and he says, you're going to know who belongs to God, and you're going to know if you belong to God by what you practice. And the danger here is that when we just look at that and we say, okay, well, therefore, yeah, just, just don't sin then. And so many of us just walk through life putting this yoke on ourselves and on other people that, well, the Bible clearly says that if you belong to God, then you will walk in righteousness. And so just do the right things. There's a list of things in the Bible that God calls sin, and there are a list of things that he calls righteous. Do the good things, avoid the bad things, and you're all set. Many of us functionally live and you're going to see this theme throughout this, this morning. Many of us functionally live, myself included, when I'm confronting this in myself, we live as though Jesus saves us from our sin, and then we become like him in our own strength. So Jesus saves me, forgives me for my sin, I take the baton from him, and now I just pursue Christ, and I run the race in my own strength trying as hard as I can not to stumble. But that's not what he does. Paul addresses this in his letter to the Galatians when he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? God transforms us into his image by the work and the power of the Spirit. You'll hear us say a lot of times that the same gospel that saves you sanctifies you. 
The same power that rescues you from your sin is the same power that transforms you and me into the image of Christ. That yes, it's true that if we fellowship in the light, we have fellowship with him, we are cleansed of all unrighteousness, and then we will grow into that image. We are given a new identity from the cross. We're given that identity, and the rest of our lives are spent trying to learn how to walk in that identity, trying to be transformed into that identity. You see how God does that? God says, this is who you are. I declare you righteous right now. But the reason you don't live in that completely is because you are still in this broken world and sin still infects. And the the shadow of sin is still there and it affects everything. And so he says, if you walk in righteousness... The power of the Spirit is there and will transform you into your righteousness. And so what John is saying is is walking in righteousness is not how we gain righteousness. He's not saying that. He's saying that the fruit of your life is evidence of who you belong to. It's evidence of who you worship. And so what I really want to do this morning is talk about like, well then, what does it look like to pursue that? How do, I, how do I practice righteousness? Because I'm guessing that if any of us are looking at our lives, we're saying, like, I don't always do that. And is that, is that a sign that I'm deceived? Or is that a sign that, like, what, what's going on? Like, how, how do I grow in righteousness? Well, John tells us how this works. Look at 1 John, the end of chapter 2. In the beginning, we're going to do the last couple of verses of chapter 2 and the first couple in chapter 3. He says, And now, little children, remember that phrase from last week? It's compassionate. It's loving. He's invested in them. He desperately wants them to hear this and be transformed in this. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now watch what happens here. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Right? Okay? We are God's children now. You're not proving yourself to be God's child. You're not earning your status as God's child. He didn't forgive you, and now he says, okay, now if you like keep working at it and you'll become my child, he says, you are God's, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because We shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay. This is what's gotten me so amped up over the course of this week. And I I hope that it translates. Most of my ministry life and most of my life in, like most of my ministry life in, in giving pastoral counsel or discipling people has been just a reflection of what God has done in my life. Like, There's never been a situation that someone has brought to me that I don't look at and say, I've experienced that same root. I've struggled in a similar way. Like, it may, not, it may not have manifested itself in the same way that I'm hearing, but it is there. That's why, by the way, if you, if, if you would be in Christ, that's why we would have compassion on people when they bring sin to us. Like We tend to look at it and be like, well, I would never do that. That's abhorrent. The same root is there. It's in your life too. And so when, when someone brings sin to me, the reason why I, I don't feel any judgment towards them is because I look at that and I go, oh, yeah, I know. I know the lies that you're buying into. And so what I want you to hear is that as he talks about how we grow into righteousness, if you find yourself in a place where you, when we talked about that darkness, where you feel yourself being pulled, 
John has something here for you. And I'm never accused of being very practical, right? Like that's always like the one thing people say, like, give me something more practical. And I'm just not very practical. But he gives us something really incredibly practical here. He gives something really incredibly practical to the person who says, I find myself being pulled. I know that I'm, like, I know that I'm orbiting around these lesser things. and I just find myself consumed by them. And I, I, know, I, I know I should be consumed by Christ, but I, I just keep being pulled. He has hope for you. He has hope. He has practical help for the person who is battling sin. Like overt sin where they just like, I cannot resist this. And they're covered with shame and just hopelessness because you've tried everything. You've done accountability. You've done studies. You've sought counsel. And you still keep struggling with this sin. He's got practical hope here for you. And then, for those who just say, I just feel kind of aimless in my Christian life. I don't really know what to do. I hear stories of people sharing the gospel and I I want to do that, but I just don't see it around me. I I, I see people being in other people's lives and being used in that way and I I want that, but I just don't know how to do that. I don't know how to jumpstart my faith and go out there and put myself out there and say, God, here I am, use me. He has practical help. Would you like to hear what that is? That would probably make sense to for me to fill that in. He says it in those little verses, especially in verses 2 and 3 of John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. Where he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We become like him when we see him for who he is, as he is. There is a phrase that comes from a poet. It has been co-opted by everybody, Christian, non-Christian, self-actualizers, everybody. It doesn't make it less true. It is this. You become what you behold. You become what you behold. Whatever you obsess over, whatever your mind is is gravitating towards, whatever you think about in the moments where you don't have other things going on, whatever you try to figure out and and deal with, you become that. And what he is saying is when we see him, that's when we will be like him. That's kind of a crazy thing to think about that. That's what he says. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the first thing he's saying is the reason why we fall into these sinful patterns and practice unrighteousness is because we don't see Jesus for who he is. That's problem number one. But then look what he says. Verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So it's not just seeing Jesus for who he is, but it's also placing my hope in him. Placing my hope in him and not in the other things that the world has to offer, not in my other pursuits. And he says, then, when we do that, when we behold him, when we see him for who he is, and we put our hope in him alone, then We will walk in righteousness. Then we will obey him. And so what I want to just put out there as something very practical and I think, I hope helpful is that whatever situation you are in, a daily rhythm to fight sin, to avoid deception, to be used by God in kingdom ways is to behold Jesus, hope in Jesus, and obey Jesus. We become what we behold. So I just want to look at those a little more closely. So we behold all kinds of things, right? Our lives are consumed, our minds are consumed by all kinds of things. And we tend to fool ourselves 
We become deceived because we think that we can have our minds captivated by whatever we want, behold whatever we want, hope in whatever we want, and still at the end of the day, honor God with our obedience. And it's foolishness. Like we behold, like you, you may, maybe you're fixated on your retirement account. Just fixated on it, like watching it grow and like what are we going to do and how we got to make sure we have enough money because like I, 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 we have to make sure that we have enough to do all the things that we want to do. And I behold that and I become consumed by that. And what happens when I behold that and become consumed by that? But my hope gets placed in that. Now my hope is in that retirement account growing to the right amount. And if that is my hope, well, then my behavior just follows. And I'm trying, constantly trying to figure out how can I pick up more hours? How can I get another job? How can I, how can I save more? How can I, what, what can I do to make sure that this thing that I've placed my hope in comes to, to fulfillment? And then we wonder why we're not very generous. We wonder why we're the wealthiest nation in the world, and yet every day we have people dying and suffering and hunger. We wonder why there are people across the world, children constantly dying from diarrhea because they don't have clean drinking water. Like we become what we behold. This happens a lot, like in our culture right now, with the whole 24-hour news cycle and social media. You just become so, we fill ourselves up with it so much from whatever side you want to talk about, but you just, we just fill ourselves with it and we, we, we kind of, we behold that. We hold that up. It's the first thing we look at when we check our phones in the morning. It's the, it's the thing we talk about all throughout the day. It's the thing that we go to bed thinking about. And yeah, yeah, I, I did. I took 20 minutes and I read through the reading plan and, and prayed a little bit or whatever, but, but the constant flood in my mind is what's going on in the world and who's to blame and how do we solve it and so then as I behold that what happens my hope becomes in figuring that out my hope becomes in being able to crack the code and figuring out what's the conspiracy over here or what's the fix over here and then convincing everybody else to do that my behavior comes out in that And so when we fill ourselves like that, we wonder why at the end we're able to make a Facebook post that sounds nothing like Jesus. It's because we become what we behold. In my own life, I see this when I look at my kids and I want them to obey and I want them to live lives of righteousness and I want them to pursue Christ. And so my, my, what I behold all the time, often, is when I see, I see the things that they're doing wrong, the things that will cause them harm, and that becomes my focus. I'm beholding my child's obedience or disobedience. And that's what I keep thinking, that's what I keep seeing, and so all I see is this thing that they did wrong or this thing that they did right, and so then my hope becomes in them doing the right things and making the right choices. And so when my hope is in my child making the right choices, is it any wonder that when I speak to them, I sound nothing like Jesus? Become what I behold. And we end up deceived. There's this incredible confrontation in Mark chapter 3. I got it on the screen. Between Jesus and the Pharisees. It says again, he entered the synagogue. Jesus entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Because it was unlawful, according to the Pharisees, to do any work on the Sabbath, including to heal somebody. That's a, that's a work. And God rests on the seventh day, so we rest. And you certainly aren't going to heal anybody. And so they waited to see. They, it was like this trap. They wanted to see, is he going to heal him so that they could accuse him of breaking the Sabbath? Because if he broke the Sabbath, that means he breaks God's law, and that means he's not the Messiah. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, he said to the people who were trying to trap him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, it's always good to point out that the only time we see Jesus expressing anger is at the religious. 
He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I think this highlights one of the great deceptions. I think there's two big deceptions in the church. When, when, when John says, do not be deceived, he says those who walk in righteousness belong to righteousness. They belong to the light. Those who walk in sin and make a practice of sinning, they belong, he says, to the devil. And one of these we see highlighted here, one of these big deceptions here, the Pharisees knew the textbook of Scripture. And it was a textbook to them. They wanted to get Jesus to break the Sabbath. They were so sure of themselves. They knew exactly what the law said. And they were so sure of themselves that even when Jesus himself confronts them on it and contradicts what they are saying, they remain unconvinced by him. And so Jesus turns around and he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to to harm? And what we see in the Pharisees is that they sought to honor God by destroying Jesus. I mean, that is as deceived as you can get, right? Like when you, when you stand there and you say, I'm going to honor God by destroying the Son of God, I think it's safe to say you're deceived. Why did that happen? What did they behold? They beheld the law. They were consumed by the law. They were consumed by the text not the author of the text. Their eyes were fixed on that. Where was their hope? Their hope was in the fulfilling of the law rather than the Messiah fulfilling the law. See what they're doing there? They want to fulfill the law. They want others to fulfill the law that they have set out. And the fruit is they seek to destroy the Messiah. That's one of the great deceptions right now. It's treating this as a textbook and I say it a lot because it's a major major issue in the church especially in churches that come from traditions that value it value God's word see it as inerrant see it as authoritative see it as inspired by the Holy Spirit which is all of those things but then we turn it into an ultimate thing and we say ah We don't need Jesus. We got this. Don't need the Holy Spirit. We got this. The answer to that is to behold Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness, not our interpretation of Scripture. Our interpretation of Scripture is not our righteousness. Jesus is righteousness. Now, Jesus, hear me clearly, Jesus will never contradict the Bible. But I guarantee that at times he will contradict your understanding of the Bible. Do you see the difference? It's a critical difference for the church right now as we move forward in this new world. He will never contradict Scripture but he will absolutely contradict your interpretation and my interpretation at times. Will you behold Jesus or will you behold your interpretation? Jesus will never contradict righteousness. There is no darkness in him at all. He will never contradict righteousness. But he will at times absolutely contradict your view and my view of righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus says, or Paul says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Practicing righteousness means abiding in Jesus. He is the light of the world. He is our righteousness. So that's one big deception that we need to be on guard against. The other one is when I say, yes, absolutely, amen, 
Thank you, Jay, for preaching that. Tired of all these idolaters that use the Bible to condemn and shame people. And so that's why I'm so happy. It's not even about the Bible. I just believe in Jesus and just follow him. And what they really mean is they follow their own version of Jesus. They follow Jesus created in their image. You hear this when people say, I know the Bible says this about these things, but my Jesus would never condemn sin like that. My Jesus would never call that unrighteous. Right? My Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't be, is not the God of the Old Testament. My Jesus doesn't ever get angry. My Jesus says, pursue whatever makes you happy. My Jesus just wants me to be happy and do whatever I feel like doing. Or my Jesus wants me to protect my rights. My Jesus has a Second Amendment bumper sticker. My Jesus would never wear a mask. What are we doing? What do we do with the fact that that Jesus looks nothing like the Jesus in the Bible? All we're doing in that point is we're making Jesus in our own image. And it's such a temptation. Because we just got to believe that Jesus sees this the way I do. Jesus believes the same thing about this that I do. Jesus would have these same emotions about seeing that social media post that I do. Jesus would see through and be able to discern through all the news media and figure out what is right and wrong. He'd be able to see it and he would see it's exactly what I think. Right? Isn't that so tempting? If you want to go into a place where you look at John and you say, look, I want to walk in righteousness. If that's your desire, I want to walk in the light as Christ is in the light. I want to be with him. I want to fellowship with him. Then you and I both have to understand that Jesus, beholding Christ, will bring us face to face with things we have always held. With things that we have always thought. With understandings of scripture that have been wrong. To say anything else is to say that Jesus has been made in my image or to say that I'm already there. John says, you're children now, but you're not where you're going to be. So you have to either say, I've already arrived. And even Paul said, not that I've already attained this, but I press on. Or you have to say, Jesus is in my image. There's only two options. So the response to that is not to pick apart the arguments about like, well, gosh, so, so should we do masks? Should we not? Like, is this true? Like, what's going on with the vaccine? What, you know, all these different things. It's not to pick apart those. The answer is to behold Jesus. Behold Jesus. This is how we are transformed. If what you want is to pursue righteousness, then the answer is to behold Christ. Paul says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And then the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Behold Jesus and become like him. You want to experience the life of Christ? Become consumed by Jesus. One of the ways you do that is to spend a lot of time in Scripture. A lot of time in prayer. A lot of time thinking about him. And when you go to Scripture, you don't go there for the list of things that Jesus approves and the list of things that he doesn't. You go there to know him. Spend a lot of time in the Gospels and watch how he interacts with people. Spend a lot of time reading the rest of the New Testament and see how others who followed him understood him. Right? Read the Old Testament with the understanding of what is coming for them. See what they long for in the Old Testament. See see how Jesus then fulfills those things. See what they're afraid of in the Old Testament. And see how Jesus delivers them from that and redeems that. 
see what they do to try to make themselves righteous and see how Jesus will free them from it. When you study the scriptures, look for Jesus. Behold him in the scriptures. And as you behold him in the scriptures, your hope will be placed in him and you'll walk in this identity. So we behold him. We hope in him. Which, by the way, so, so that's, beholding is how we, we begin all of this. And, and I know that for many people, you say, okay, I get that, but, but I'm trying to do that and I keep failing. I want this. I'm, I'm seeing, I know how Jesus, if he were in my shoes, I know how Jesus would speak to my kids and I still can't do it. I know that how Jesus would respond when, he was, when he's by himself and he's got his phone right there. I know what Jesus would be doing and I still can't do that. Place your hope in him. Verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our hope is in him for our righteousness. It's not just, he's not just our example of righteousness. He is also our hope. He makes us righteous. So when we behold as righteous, we're not, we're not shamed into thinking, like, well, I can never be that. Like, look what he says in, in verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You don't have to shrink from him in shame at his coming. Why? Because your hope is in him. He has said, I am the propitiation for your sins. So your hope is in him, not in your ability to obey. Not in your own strength. That's why everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We often, we, we fall in the same trap where we say, yeah, my, my salvation my hope is in Jesus for my salvation, but my hope for everything else is in me. See, here's the thing. Jesus is not just our hope in the propitiation for our sins, okay? He's also our hope for every desire. Every desire is fulfilled in Christ. Righteousness is not just right behavior. It is a transformed mind and a transformed heart that produces transformed lives. And one of the ways that we fight this sin, fight sin in our lives when we recognize this, is we just realize that the goal isn't to tell ourselves, like, we, this is how we often fight sin. Like, the reality is we sin, so I'm, I'm speaking to those who are battling against sin. You, you and I sin because we want to sin. I mean, that's just the basic truth. I want to do this. That's why I do it. You say, well, I, I don't really want to do that. Well, there's part of you that doesn't. That's the spirit in you fighting against that. But ultimately, what wins is what you really want to do. We think that what the world is offering is better than what Jesus has to offer. Eve ate the apple because she wanted to. She thought that knowledge of good and evil was better than what God was offering her. And so our typical way of fighting sin is we try to convince ourselves we don't want the thing that we want. You ever try to do that? Just try to convince yourself. I don't want to look at this. I don't want to watch this. I don't want to pursue this. I don't want to do that. Yes, you do. That's why you do it. The answer that Jesus has is to shift your hope and your desire to something better. That believe that Jesus has something better. This is how he can say, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. Because when you are beholding Christ and you're putting your hope in Christ, not just for the forgiveness of your sins, but for your very life, every desire you've ever had, everything that you want, everything, everything that you hoped your life will be, Everything you want from, from relationships or from work or from anything, you place your hope in Christ to fulfill those things. To fulfill them the way that he sees as good and just and right. When you do that, he does not withhold anything from you. That's what he means when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. 
I used to read that as kind of when my parents would say, first do your chores and then you can go play outside. I think a lot of us feel that way with that kind of verse. Okay, got it. First I go to church, make sure I go to church. I'll sit and listen to Jay Ramble. I'll sing the songs or whatever. Then I can go do whatever I want to do. That's what it means. Put God first. I put him first. I have my quiet time, first point of the day, and then I go and do whatever I want. I give money to the church, and then I go and spend it however I want. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you place your hope for security, your hope for fulfillment, your hope for, for, to be known and to be loved. You put all of that on Christ and are fulfilled in him, and he fulfills every desire. He is your hope then it frees you to enjoy the gifts that he might give you. Whether it's through a marriage or through a hobby or through a vacation or through a job, whatever he does. Because your hope is not in those things. Your hope is in Christ. So if you want to fight against sin in your life, then behold Christ. Flood your mind with Christ and put your hope in him. Figure out, why do I really want this thing? What is it I'm actually pursuing here? And see, how does Christ fulfill this? And then once you do that, then you obey. Once I'm beholding Christ. Here's the thing. Try this. Try just thinking about Christ and flooding your mind with thoughts of Christ and images of Christ and, and considering what he does in the Gospels and considering... Do that the next time you're driving to the grocery store and try to get mad at the person in front of you because they're taking a long time. It's not going to work. You're going to clash. You can't sit there and, and just put your hope in Christ and say, Christ, you're, you're it. Like, you're all I have. And consider how he interacts with people, how he loves people, and how he walks through the world. And then you come into a grocery store and you yell at the cashier or you snap at them because they're out of stock of something? It doesn't happen. Faithful obedience then means trusting that Jesus is better, that what he offers is better, and then just acting in accordance, in accordance with that. Realizing that I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He is your identity. It's no longer you, it's Christ. And those are those crossroads moments where we say, okay, I'm acting in faithful obedience. I'm just going to trust him. I've been beholding him. And so now all of a sudden, the things that I was reading on the, on the news blogs, that just doesn't seem as big of a deal. And you know what? Even though I think this, I think that this is the best way for our country to go, my hope isn't in that. And so my hope is in Christ. And so I hold that loosely. And I'm able to love people who disagree with me on those things. And now all of a sudden... All, instead of being really agitated when I see something that from somebody else, and I get like all worked up because I'm like, how can they not see this the way that I see this? I'm like, okay. Your brother or sister in Christ, I love you. Or you're not a brother or sister in Christ, and I know that the answer isn't to fix your worldview, it's to point you to Jesus. But either way, the focus is Jesus. It transforms the way I live every day, every moment. Think about how it would transform how you step into work, how you come home to your family, how you help your kids with their homework. The last thing I'm going to say, just to wrap this up, when we do this, just, I just want you to think for a second of what it would look like if our church family just close your eyes for a second. I'll close my eyes so I don't know if you're just blowing me off. Just imagine what would it look like if our church family was so consumed with Jesus, talking with awe and wonder with one another is what we see in the scriptures. whether it's in the Old Testament and we're reading about sacrifices and rejoicing at how Christ is our sacrifice. He is our atonement. And then waiting and longing for the Messiah and seeing how great is it that we are here where we've seen the Messiah. We know that he has come. 
Or we're reading the Gospels and, and discussing it together and just saying, look at, can you imagine the woman at the well? Like, look at how he interacts with her. Or when we read in the epistles and we see Paul and John and Peter, like, just begging people, wanting them to pursue Christ and lifting up Christ constantly. Just imagine if we're so consumed beholding him and all of our hope is in him, not in, not in our programs and not in our politics and, and not in our works, but our hope is just in Christ to fulfill every desire that we have. And we are constantly trying to figure out what does it look like that Jesus is better And then we go out into the world living lives that flow out of that. Just imagine what that would look like. An army of several hundred people constantly in our communities. Walking in righteousness. Walking in the way that Jesus walked. That's how John defines it. In the way that Jesus walked. Miniature versions of Christ. The body of Christ. What would happen? Now. What you would have there is an incredible platform to share the gospel. Because when we walk in the same way in which he walked, we show people what God is like and who Jesus is. One of the big encouragements of the ministry lately has been several of you calling me and saying, I, God has placed me in this situation to love my neighbor or to love my family member, and I don't know how to do it. Help me. Like, how do I do that? I mean, just multiple times. One of them that keeps coming up is I have, I have a friend, I have a family member, I have a neighbor who's gay. And I don't know what to do. I hear what you're saying. I know that, like, that I'm supposed to preach Christ, but what do I, how do I do that? How do I do that in a way that doesn't like, confuse the issue or doesn't like, condone something I don't want to condone? And remember, we've talked about that before, that Jesus never seems concerned about what we condone or don't condone. He concerns about, he's concerned about our hearts and what we live and that what we believe and how we love. And people, as they're asking this question, usually step one is this. Step one is get them to stop focusing on the issue that you think is the problem and point them to the light. That's step one. Stop beholding the sin. Stop beholding the rebellion. Stop beholding that. Stop becoming consumed with that and become consumed with Jesus. Focus on Christ. That is our hope. That is why we every week just lift the name of Jesus. It's why we don't put our hope in programs and studies. We put our hope in Christ. It's why we don't put our hope. It's why I don't just give you just like, hey, here's seven happy hops to make your marriage better today. I want your marriage to be better, but I know that the best way to make that happen is for you both to be so consumed with Christ and your hope to be so much in Christ that it transforms the way that you live and treat one another. It's why we're constantly singing songs about Christ. It's why we're constantly ringing this bell. Our hope is in Jesus. And I know that if you are hearing this and you're saying, well, I think that's all a bunch of garbage, that I don't have anything else for you. He is our only hope. He is our only hope to deliver us from sin. He is our only hope to be made righteous. He is our only hope for the fulfillment of our deepest desires. And God has given you those desires, by the way. Desiring things is not wrong. It's a good thing. God gave it to you to desire. He just said it's fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled in me. And John says, if you truly believe these things, you will walk in the same way in which he walked. That's the role of the church. Not to fight for morality, not to push a worldview, but to be the image of God, to be the body of Christ, to be ambassadors for Christ. And when we do that, we are giving people opportunity to behold the light. And then when people comment on that, we can point them to the source of it all. Let's pray. Father, I am trusting you completely. to take all of that and make it valuable. And that is the work of the Spirit. 
So Lord, I am rejoicing right now because I know you. I've seen you do this week after week after week. And I know, God, that you are working in people's lives. And there are people in this room right now that you are transforming and that they, God, I pray by your grace that you have given them an aha moment, given them a turning point. Let them see a crossroads. Let them feel conviction, but also hope and forgiveness. And God, as they do, as they think that right now, God, if that's them and they're saying like, yes, that's me, God, I pray that you would make it abundantly clear that that is because of you. That is because you love them enough to bring them here to listen to a hyper-rambling pastor so that the Holy Spirit would speak to them because you love them. And whether what you are speaking to them right now, God, is conviction or encouragement or motivation, whatever it is, God, I pray that they would realize it comes from love. And God, I pray for those who have been embattled by sin, that they would be encouraged that the the fact that the fight is even happening in their heart is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in them. We are reminded that Jesus was grieved at the hardness of heart. He saw sin all around him all the time. Jesus, you saw sin everywhere, but what grieved you was the hardness of heart. So I pray, God, that you would encourage those who are entrapped in sin and they feel like there's no way out, that they would be reminded that the fact that they are in that turmoil is conviction, and conviction comes from the Holy Spirit and is evidence that they are alive. You are clear in your word. It is those who say they have no sin who are deceived. God, wake us up. Let us behold you. Let us place our hope in you. And out of that, may we live lives that reflect you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.